Hi, y'all. So here's the thing. I have to do this a little differently today for a few reasons that I don't even need to go into. Actually, that's my autonomy. That's what it means to have autonomy, to have your own reasons for things and not to necessarily choose to share them with others and to have your own right to privacy, although that is a debate for the future future topic. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to offer this up a little bit here for the ethics class and then for the core senior sem, but mostly for ethics because this week we're talking about Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex a little bit, the selection from your book, um, on moral philosophy for our class, and then Audre Lorde as well. And we're going to do both this week and then go into next week if we need to. So what I decided to do was to have somewhat of our class today, although now I'm kind of giving myself away. Um, You know, people accuse me of wanting to be one step ahead or something of that nature. I don't even know what that means. I just try to adapt to my situation. Ah, there's Beauvoir for you. My circumstances or my abilities or lack thereof. And in my learning process, which is both shared, communal, and uniquely my own, and I deserve it to be uniquely, and you deserve it to be uniquely your own, in your learning process as well, uh, you deserve that privacy. Now, because my life has been hacked, I'm not sure I'll get that privacy. I'm not sure if I have it even right now. I could be interrupted as I'm trying to do this autonomous lecture in this way. We had a choice when we all went online to virtual classrooms to have either synchronous or asynchronous classes, meaning we could have them during our normal days and weeks and times that we would usually have them. And I chose that because I thought it would be better as a collective to do it that way. And it has been on many levels. But as I sit here, I'm going to give you a very uh, womanist and also uh, feminist and also just Beauvoir moment for you. If you've been reading, you'll know what I mean. As I sit here today, my situation includes there's another mini storm coming uh, around this afternoon. They're saying about 50 mile per hour winds. And again, because I live on the water, it's a little bit of a concern, but it should be after our classes are over. But I also have tools here. I have a choice, right? I can combine our lectures today, our communal discussion, which I know you're all preparing for in different ways. And uh, I can also give a a mini podcast type situation and put that online for you and we can combine it all. And it's not any sort of me taking, you know, one trying to be one step ahead of anybody or anything like that. It's that I'm sitting here bleeding. I'm literally bleeding, Now, psychoanalysts are going to have a field day with my language, uh, but I, you know, Beauvoir talks about women being defined by uh, her ovaries (laughs) and that and that that's a problem. Right. Um, The way she says it is basically, you know, uh, is femininity uh, secreted by the ovaries. Okay, femininity is not secreted by the ovaries. And you know what she means by this if you've been reading. But I am literally situationally, she talks about the situation, the existential situation. I am confronted with multiple storms here of different kinds that I in no way can control nor have a need to control. And in fact, are they are trying to control me. One of those is that I'm literally bleeding. Now, I don't want to get into too many specifics about this, but women do menstruate, right? And women go through perimenopause, which I've been going through for the past two years, and menopause. And these are very important aspects, not all women, by the way, right? So keep that in mind. But these are very important aspects of a personal situation, of an individual situation, not necessarily of any collective situation, right? Not necessarily. So think about the logic there. It is not all just a spider web of collectivity. When I'm sitting here literally bleeding so badly All of a sudden, because I did not menstruate in March for the first time in 30 years, uh, 32 years, I think, um, and... That could have been partly due to surviving COVID. Uh, It could have been partly due to my perimenopause situation. I'm really not sure. But at the moment, as of the last 24 to 48 hours, especially right now this morning, I am bleeding so badly that I'm wondering how much blood loss 
a person can take before they pass out. (laughs) So on that note, that is my situation. And they're going to say, it's not all about you, Chris. Well, guess what? Kind of, it sort of is sometimes. And so I'm going to have to do what I need to do today. So you may have had some sort of collective plan. You may have had individual plans, but I need to have a particular plan as well at the moment. And getting into Beauvoir, I'll just say this about um, my particular situation and then just jump into the text. We will do Beauvoir today. We will still have class today, as you'll see, because you got an invitation already, so you're already planning, right? I hope if you saw that invitation, we're still going to have class, but we're going to do it a different way. And I'm going to ask you to listen to the podcast as well as part of your class. But just to do some Beauvoir, in general, the, the way to start today, at least for my particular situation, the way that I would like to start is that You know, man has, you know, you get her point if you've been reading for today, man has posited woman as the other with a capital O, meaning outside of man, outside of the man, but also as in male, right? But also outside of humankind. Think of no offense to any religion. Of course, we're just doing Beauvoir from the second sex. So she brings up organized religion. She's an existentialist. And she says, uh, you know, woman had to be taken from the rib of man, even in the Adam and Eve story. Woman was made and created from the body of man, an actual man, representing mankind, representing human beings. I always joke with students that I wasn't taken from the rib of any man, although I have had significant dependence on my mentors, many, not all, by the way, who have happened to be men in philosophy because there are more men in philosophy. It's really a statistic problem, but also um, a white male problem, but also a, a problem in the way that Beauvoir talks about here with men and women and men being the models and then women looking up to men as their models. And I'm thinking here also of my race theory mentor, not just my other philosophy, early modern mentor, but just women having to look up to men as their models and then listening to those men and what they think is the situation. Well, I'm telling you today, my situation is mine alone, right? You all have that as well. Your situations are very different in your particular circumstances, right? Uh, So Beauvoir says at the bottom of page 222, but I'll go back to the beginning. Beauvoir says, you know, why do women not contest male sovereignty? And she says, no subject posits itself spontaneously, true, but at you also are uh, have autonomy. You're also needing to define and should be allowed and are I am right now, right? Defining myself and what that means for me. Uh, The other is posited as other by the one, positing itself as the one. She says, but in order for the other not to turn into the one, the other has to submit to this foreign point of view. And of course, at this moment anyway, in the text, she does not mean foreign in a negative sense. She means others' opinions, theories, beliefs, and assessments about you. Where does the submission in women, where does this submission in women come from? And she goes on to say in those same pages, although I will go back to the beginning, she goes on to say in those same pages, a situation created over time can come undone at another time. So let's talk about time. She goes on to say here, in truth, nature is no more immutable and immutable given than is historical reality. Interesting. If women discovers herself as the inessential, having been put there already by the definitions created by men, right? She says, um, if woman discovers herself as the inessential and never turns into the essential, it is because she does not bring about this transformation herself. So again, there's a logic issue with the community, right? Because how do you do it yourself as autonomous if it's also a communal process. This is a very, very difficult, challenging logic problem. And I know you all know what I mean by that. So think about the logic there. Proletarians say we, capital, uh, or in quotes, maybe not capitalized, we, 
uh, so do blacks, she says. Positing themselves as subjects, they thus transform the bourgeois or whites into the others, right? And there's a lot to talk about here. Um, she says women's actions at the bottom of page 223 have never been more than symbolic agitation. And I don't know if I'm doing symbolic agitation right now or not. This is a very hard logic problem. They have won only what men have been willing to concede to them. They have taken nothing. They have received. It is, and she's being sarcastic here, but also historically speaking, right? And also symbolically speaking. And also theoretically, think of Plato's forms or the notion of woman as womb in some organized religions. The idea that woman is connected to her body and that that definition of woman has been created by men that we supposedly are the life givers of the species therefore in many ways um you know because we can some of us give birth some of us choose not to give birth i personally have chosen now at this point in life not to give birth and probably most of my life um so woman is seen as related to her body just like People of color uh, are often made to be uh, seen or understood as being uh, of their body and not having their own brains, hearts, us meaning any minoritized population, any marginalized population. Beauvoir talks about Jewish individuals. She talks about slavery in America. And there are problems, by the way, in Beauvoir with her notions of, uh, uh, you know, her own whiteness, I would say. And there's really cool work that's been done on this. She definitely does have room. There is room for critique there. But in this particular section we're reading for now in our ethics class, she makes very good points. And I think she's, for the most part, pretty balanced in her assessments, although just know there is room for critique here. She says that it is that they lack the concrete means to organize themselves into a unit that they could posit itself in opposition. And also that would be on an individual level, right? So going back to the beginning of the actual selection you're reading from The Second Sex, which, by the way, was uh, published around the well, early 1940s. Um, and also at the same time that she published Lon Vitae, the metaphysical novel, she came to stay about a relationship between three individuals, one man, two women. And it is an incredible novel. We'll probably be reading it in Core 104, so give you a little heads up there so you all can be three steps ahead of me or whatever that means. Um, she says... Uh, that Beauvoir says that woman is losing herself, woman is lost. So think about what that means. And she references platonic heaven and platonic ideals in Plato. We haven't done much Plato in this particular class, but what she's talking about there in particular is woman being posited as some sort of um, imminent norm, whereas men are posited as some sort of transcendental norm or that which is outside of the human being some sort of form human, right? And so, but, you know, side note in book seven of Plato's Republic, which by the way, we all learn about the allegory of the cave. Also in that book, Plato says, women and men should be allowed to be trained equally in the gymnasium and could run the state, run the country, uh, be trained as leaders on equal par with men. Plato does say that, so that's important. He also talks about race and culture in Book 7 of the Republic. That's thousands of years ago, so I don't think we should get rid of Plato in, you know, it, it, and just critique him like that in, in its entirety, some sort of sweeping generalization. Uh, I would ask you all to look up the notion of bad faith at this point, and if you can do a little homework on that, and I'll do that with you. But Beauvoir and Jean Sartre, the existentialists, uh, that are, we're thinking about right now also an intro to philosophy, this notion of what is bad faith? What does it consist of? What does it mean for the existentialist? Beauvoir says right at the beginning of this particular selection from the second sex, she says, if some backward individual still takes herself for a woman, her friends advise her to undergo psychoanalysis <laughs> to get rid of this obsession. So it's really interesting. If you could think about that for a little while, what does it mean for woman to be considered as a human being? She says, the fact is that every concrete human being is always uniquely situated. So the defiant position 
that American women occupy proves that they are haunted by the feeling of their own femininity. So she's talking about those constructs, those social constructs, feminine, masculine, and what women do behaviorally and otherwise. You know, I'm being tracked in what I consume, and I've been being tracked in what I consume for many, many, many years. And um, probably it'll get put into some ridiculous or awesome or necessary, I really don't know at this point, archive without my permission. But, you know, maybe some of it is with my permission here, right here. Um, But think about what she's saying in that dichotomy create, that, that problematic bifurcation between what you call feminine and what that consists of. Uh, and all, all often has to do with, you know, speaking calmly and reservedly and softly instead of being loud and awesome and, you know, saying it the way it needs to be said, considering the context and the situation and the dynamics of the situation or what it means to be masculine. Men don't cry, right? Isn't that a problem? That's a problem that we that we culturally uh, teach our young men not to cry. And by the way, it's not just men teaching other men. This isn't a critique of men here that men should not cry. It's your mother's teaching you you shouldn't cry. It's your sister's. So (laughs) this is a larger problem. This isn't just a critique of men. And Beauvoir writes at the bottom of 220, she says, It would never occur to a man to write a book on the singular situation of males in humanity. And I would like to put you under the microscope, right, I would say, instead of you men putting me under the microscope, for example. If I want to define myself, I first have to say, I am woman. I am a woman. All other assertions will arise from this basic truth. A man never begins by positing himself as an individual of a certain sex. That he is a man is obvious. And then when we talk race theory here, too, as a white woman race theorist who has studied uh, for years one way or another with George Yancey as my mentor, one of many, by the way, um, I, I couldn't ever possibly say to George, I would like to put you under a microscope your whole life. What do you consume? You consume me right now. So... What can I put that under a microscope? I would never be able to do that. That wouldn't be right. And I, I know that I I take a back seat. I shut up, right? I don't interrupt, right? I know that, uh, I cannot ask that of George because of what George has to go through in a racist society, uh, in his own life and as a philosopher, but as a friend, as one human being to another human being and as two philosophers, I can ask that and go from there. So just a, just an example for you to think about there. Um, and so Beauvoir goes on to say, by 221, woman is the negative to such a point that any determination is imputed to her as a limitation without reciprocity. So that was my point there uh, two minutes ago, right? A limitation without reciprocity. It's so fascinating, isn't it? Uh, she says, it is woman who is in the wrong here. Now, men putting woman into the wrong, saying they're in the wrong, woman asserting herself, and then having certain ideals that unfortunately are already programmed to be masculine, and then looking up to those ideals is in the wrong, and then woman just being woman is in the wrong, and even women who want to be feminine. I think here of drag queens, oh my god, wonderful, right? And trans women, trans men, and just if there's any, I always found this so fascinating that there's this existential critique of femininity, but Beauvoir chose to wore skirts and lipstick and high heels, and that was the costume, the the uniform of the time, of her time period. And yet she chose it. So that was her choice. And it was awesome, actually. I think there's nothing wrong with those choices. So if I choose to wear high heels or not, if I choose to wear lipstick, if I choose to wear dresses and skirts, I remember the philosopher, there was a philosopher, a brilliant, brilliant philosopher, Mariana Ortega, who said to me when she first met me, uh, who critiqued me for the the brand of shoes I was wearing and also who critiqued me for um, wearing certain uh, skirts all the time and dresses. And then we talked about it actually a few years later and I, I had problematically been carrying that critique around 
but also uh, I had a point and she shouldn't have done that. But she also said, no, no, no. I just meant that you shouldn't wear them on the first day of class because you want people to treat you with respect. You should never wear dresses and skirts on the first day of classes. That's what she qualified it as later. And I get her point, but I disagree also, right? Because I think Beauvoir's point would be, okay, you need to have this, you know, respect for yourself and define that for yourself. And maybe that includes wearing dresses and skirts and lipsticks and, high, and lipstick and high heels, right? So maybe that's what that is for you. And of course, Ortega's point was, and again, she's a brilliant philosopher, you should look her up, her work. And um, in fact, uh, her one of her protégés, Andrea Pitts, is phenomenal philosopher. And Andrea's wife um, is one of my oldest friends, uh, although we haven't reconnected in a while. And so uh, there's a lot of different connections here, a lot of different webs uh, going around, but, uh, you know, internet and otherwise, World Wide Web, right? But I think that the point is, is you can choose a certain kind of femininity if you want, and it's not all bad. I think here of drag queens who wear high heels, dresses and lipstick, and that's a different, you know, makeup and hair and, you know, that's a different sort of thing. And we've talked about drag queens in my other classes as well, philosophy of love and sex. And that's a whole other ballgame. There's different variables there. But the point is, is if I want to wear a skirt on you know, the first day of teaching as a philosopher, that shouldn't be critiqued in any direction. That should be my autonomous choice. That isn't me choosing femininity in a problematic way, for example. But getting back to Beauvoir, there are problematic conceptions that define us sadly as feminine when by a a larger social construct, social order, you know, I'm thinking here of Judith Butler's notion of performativity. You know, there are ways to think about this that we need to evaluate and analyze and maybe change. Maybe you need to change them. But I still want to wear dresses. That's me. That's me. That's who I am. I don't consider it necessarily a symbol of performance of femininity or performing femininity necessarily in the Judith Butler way. I just think of it as me. I like the freedom of, in fact, you know, people um, often critique uh, me for my thoughts about shoes, which I find fascinating <laughs> in so many ways. Uh, but uh, I just, it's a, it's a freedom thing. If I could be, you know, f- more free in my clothing choices, that's where I would go. So if I could teach class for example, uh, all tattooed up, you know, with my long hair in dresses, barefoot, you know, um, maybe probably a little bit of makeup, but not much a little sunscreen, but not much. Um, I'm just trying to think it may be a little jewelry, but not much, you know, like that's my choice. That's me, right? Maybe a tattoo of a third eye on my left hand, <laughs> but that's just the way it is. I'm creating myself. I'm defining myself. Right. And you all have that freedom. And now we could talk about this from a race theory perspective. Not everybody has that kind of freedom necessarily, but you do as a human being, as an individual with your own mind and heart, you do have ways existentially and otherwise to find your own freedom. I was trying to figure out last night, since my life is being so consumed here and monitored and hacked, I was trying to figure out where do I go? Where can I go? And it's not that you're chasing me down to some corner and forcing me to change. I'm not talking about that, although some are doing that as well or trying to. I try to figure out where do you go? Well, you can go to your own mind, but also there is, there are legitimate metaphysical concerns here and critiques and analyses that are allowed in. I'm thinking here of Suzanne Giesman and evidential mediumship and the idea of that we all have our each unique soul. So if you go to that level, there there is still this discussion of being a connected web. Often these folks talk about spiritualists, for example, you can look it up, right? Spiritualists talk about, uh, we each have individual souls and they're ours to create completely, completely ours to create uniquely like a fingerprint. It's yours. Nobody can get in there. (laughs) It's so great. It's so fantastic. And yet, we are also metaphysically all connected. All souls are connected also. Now, I don't know how the physics of all that works, and I can't wait to find out. I do not understand how those laws of nature work. They, those are what we would consider from the laws of nature of the earth and human beings as earth 
human beings, which is what Beauvoir wants you to focus on being, you know, blood and bone, earthbound, brain, body, human being, right? Um, that's it. There was no God for Beauvoir and Sartre and many existentialists. But this isn't about a, a God of any organized religion or anything of that nature. You know, my God is not a white man in the sky, so to speak, but it's not a woman in the sky either. <laughs> my gods are not men or women per se, but um, not from any organized religion perspective, but also with all due respect to the great and wonderful and beautiful parts of the organized religions that we do create. And there's a lot to be said there. And I don't want to be the one who says it. I don't need to be. So, but if you're thinking about this from that more metaphor, physical perspective, which Beauvoir won't allow for here, so I'll stop and go back to her. Uh, it's We are really all connected. You know, Einstein said energy cannot be destroyed or created. So it, we are all energy. You know, you think about the infinite again. Where does it go, right? I, what, would, what would we answer in a Beauvoir sense then about the infinite? think about that. There's some massive logic problems there. Uh, And you can hear my stutter because sometimes I stutter. That's just part of my brain. But women has ovaries and a uterus and damn straight I'm experiencing that today. Such are the particular conditions though, Beauvoir means, that lock her in her subjectivity according to the ideals defined by masculinity or by men. Some even say she thinks with her hormones. I wonder if I'm doing that today in the Beauvoir sense hmm, or in a different sense. One would even say she thinks with her hormones. Well, you know what Beauvoir means here, right? It's that old problem of, you know, Hillary Clinton couldn't be president of the United States because she'll, she'll, it'll be that time of month and, and she'll, uh, you know, she'll, uh, you know, bomb somebody. And well, that was stupid. That was a stupid critique of Hillary Clinton, of any woman when they're menstruating. Uh, absurd because for starters, uh, she was in menopause when she was running for president. So she wasn't menstruating on a monthly basis, but thinking with their hormones, it says, you know, women, so that's what Beauvoir means there a little bit, but also that we're defined uh, by our womb, according to these masculine ideals, right? That we are, that we are meant to, to be associated with only our bodies and the womb because we give birth. And that's what she also means by hormones. Now she's critiquing this problem, right? This idea. We are not only defined as our bodies, although I certainly am at the moment today, this morning. I'm sitting here wondering, how am I going to have class? Because I'm going to, am I going to make it? Because I have two classes back to back and they're three hours. And am I going to make it without anyone knowing that I went to the restroom or the bathroom? Can I sneak away while you're all talking? Is that responsible of me to sneak away? Because I know you have lessons for me. I know you have questions for me. I know you have comments for me. And can I, can I sneak away and would you know? And is that okay? Because I'm bleeding all over the place. And I don't know if I'll make it a full three hours with that amount of blood coming out. So there's a lot of logic to think about there. Man vainly forgets that his anatomy also includes hormones and testicles. Beauvoir says he grasps, you know, you know, have some balls. I say he grasps his body as a direct and normal link uh, with the world that he believes he apprehends in all objectivity, whereas he considers woman's body an obstacle, a prison, burdened by everything that particularizes it. So am I burdening you with particularizing this situation today that we're in here in this class as I'm bleeding and bleeding and bleeding? metaphorically and literally and otherwise, I guess. Um, She goes on to say, humanity is male and man defines woman, not in herself, but in relation to himself. She is not considered an autonomous being. Well, yeah, I am. Even right now, though, if I'm being hacked, if my phone's been hacked, if I'm being consumed by someone else, if I'm being interrupted here in this podcast, then I don't even get that chance to define myself and my autonomy. If I'm being listened to in my home, that sounds a little crazy, right? People call me paranoid. That's incorrect. (laughs) We'll talk all about Holland someday if you want. That's incorrect. But um, for those of you who know what I mean there, you know, if I'm being monitored, I mean, you know, in all these different ways, some archival or otherwise, uh, then do I ever get privacy to bleed alone? Which is my right. So Beauvoir goes on to say at the bottom of page 221, woman does not think herself without man. 
And she is nothing other than what that man decides or what men decide. She is thus called the sex, right? Meaning that the male sees her essentially as a sexed being. For him, she is sex, so she is in the absolute, right, in that way. She determines and differentiates herself in relation to man, and he does not do so in relation to her. She is the inessential in front of the essential, and at this point, I would think that that is a problematic if this is a community lesson, because uh, how do we have autonomy then was the earlier logic point, right? Also, Beauvoir says he is the subject, he is the absolute, and she is the other. So just really quickly to wrap this up, because I don't want to take up you know, all your time or anything, trying to be respectful of the time that you use for our class. And I've been working all morning already. I'm sure many of you have as well. And so just trying to think about how our class is an hour and 20 minutes, and I am still going to have some class today. Beauvoir goes on, to, and you are as well, right? You all are going to be there having class today as well. Beauvoir says, uh, no group ever defines itself as one, capital O, you know, one, without immediately setting up the other opposite to itself. I'm thinking here also of the LGBTQ community uh, because there is a lot of problems there as well. Um, just as the LGBTQIA plus community finally gets the rights to be, you know, legal rights to marry who they want to, but still, there's still a lot of problems with that, right? You'll see this sur- resurgence of organized religion and, and conversion therapy tactics and maybe even one would say reverse conversion therapy tactics i point you here back to my most recent podcast on sex and music and love from a few days ago so if you could do that as well listen to that if you want um up to you but i can point you back there and also extra credit if you want to to do that for yourself uh she says uh, beauvoir says this vaguely hostile others right you know village people view anyone not belonging to the village as suspicious For the native of a country, inhabitants of other countries are viewed as foreigners. Jews are the others for anti-Semites. Blacks are the others and brown individuals. For those uh, in a racist America, she says, in the racist Amer- for racist Americans, indigenous peoples for colonists, proletarians for the propriety, propriety, propriety classes. Um, and think here of the problematic of low, middle, and upper class, which we are all now going through in many different ways. In, a, in I think some ways we could have anticipated because it was already happening on so many levels. And also now in ways we could not have anticipated. So if there's some sort of formula going on here for our class, you know, or for uh, our new world now, our brave new world, I think some of these details need to be reevaluated because we're isolated at home. If you're listening to the experts and scientists, you should be wearing a mask if you go out in public. If you're being responsible, if you're loving your neighbors, you should be wearing a mask, even if you don't want to. You don't want to harm others, and, and and you are maybe immune and asymptomatic to COVID-19, but just by being outside without a mask, you might be actually literally killing others. So we should be listening to the scientists, and now the academics, right? They're, they're, they're turning to the academics, surprise, surprise, and to the socialists. You know, everybody's getting free testing, or will hopefully, hopefully there's not enough tests, get free testing for COVID, antibody tests and otherwise, and not going to be charged for it in their health care or if lack, health, lack of health care, right? Excuse me. That's a very socialist idea ironic isn't it that we're turning to these principles in times of this collective crisis so you don't need to know necessarily the references here she she has a lot of references you can look them up we can look them up together i know some i have to look up some i have to be reminded of some i can't do all the references for all my classes for every time we talk all the time because i can't keep all that in my head necessarily so we go back to it and we relearn it and we relook it up together and i will do the same with you um, you know, I had some folks point out in intro in the film studies uh, yesterday that they were looking up all the details of 
all the different ways to think about these films. Kudos to you. I can and cannot do that all the time. No individual can and cannot do that all the time, can do all the references. So as a collective, we can look up the references together. She says, this is Beauvoir saying, and by the way, I found two logic problems she has. See if you can find them. There's probably more in this selection, but I mean philosophically, there's systematic logic problems here. But to her credit, she did, he, she says, you know, um, this is on page 222, uh, two, 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 but the other consciousness has an opposing reciprocal claim, traveling. A local is shocked to realize, now we're all travelers, right? But be very careful with that, right? A local is shocked to realize that in neighboring countries, locals view him as a foreigner. Between villages, clans, nations, and classes, there are wars, potlatches, agreements, treaties, and collective struggles, that, or struggles, she says, that remove the absolute meaning from the idea of the other, with capital O, and bring out its relativity. Whether one likes it or not, individuals and groups have no choice but to recognize the reciprocity of their relation. Now, how are we going to reconcile the logic problem of autonomy, of one's autonomy, of creating oneself as a work of art, existentially speaking, but also the reciprocity uh, of the relation to each other? That's a logic problem. Beauvoir goes on to say, how is it then that between the sexes, this reciprocity has not been put forward yet? So between neighbors, it's been put forward, although maybe not well enough in the United States um, and other places uh, better, maybe. And uh, the reciprocity had to happen between nations. There's been war treaties and just treaties of peace, peace treaties. There's even been reciprocity that had to happen between different groups and cultural groups of Native Americans in um, the Americas and in North America, right? There's even that has happened. You know, we had to find a way to reconcile our differences in a way that was respectful and not kill each other. And yet, Beauvoir's amazing logic point here is that that it does not seem to have happened between men and women or between maybe men who dictate the lives and meaning of women. And we haven't been able to find that reciprocity. And I think she's still right, still today, in many, many, many ways. So just going on then, we already talked about 222 and 223 earlier. She says, however, though, not one event but a whole historical development explains their existence as a class and accounts for the distribution of these individuals in this class. See if you can see the logic problems there. She says, there have not always been proletarians, There have always, but there have always been women. Oh, such a good point, right? There have not, historically speaking, right? It's not all about history because there have not, you know, you can't reduce logically everything to just history here, just like you couldn't logically reduce everything to some absolute ideal or universal law of nature. She says, there have not always been proletarians, but there have always been women. Oh, such a great quote. I think I put it on my bumper sticker. They, <laughs> um, they <laughs> I got to add some flags here, some sound effects. Uh, they, they are women by their physiological structure as far as back as history can be traced. Uh, they have always been subordinate to men, she says. Alterity here appears to be an absolute. So that's what she means, alterity here as an absolute, forced but always different, and forced to be different, and partly because it falls outside the accidental nature of historical fact. Let me say that again. Partly because it falls outside the accidental nature of historical fact. Now, that 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 idea of accidental nature and chance is fascinating. <laughs> if, if everything is laws of nature, how can there be any accident or chance? Side note aside, right? Hashtag woke. Um, she goes on to say, a situation created over time can come undone at another time, right? We already said that in, earlier in the podcast. So just to wrap this up so that it's only about 45 minutes, to so give you a heads up there. Women's actions have never been more um, than symbolic agitation. They have won only what men have been willing to concede to them. So that, again, already stated earlier in the podcast. If you go down to then um, the bottom of page 224, 
really all of pages 224 and 225, 26, 27, really, really, really important. And we can talk about those today. Um, but just as we get ready for class uh, today, by the time you're listening to this, uh, class will already have been over. So funny little uh, reverse causal moment there, theoretically speaking. Uh, she says that, you know, women lack their own space and the space to create their own space. This problem creates a lack of space. 224, she says, quote, the tie that binds her to her oppressors is unlike any other. The division of the sexes is a biological given, not a moment in human history. She goes on to say later at the bottom of that page, master and slave are also linked by a reciprocal economic need that does not free the slave. That is, in the master-slave relation, the master does not posit the need he has for the other. The need may be uh, even in theory that one may have for the other. He holds the power to satisfy this need and does not mediate it. The slave, on the other hand, out of dependence, hope, or fear, let me say that again, out of dependence, hope, or fear, internalizes his need for the master. However equally compelling the need may be to them both, it always plays in favor of the oppressor over the oppressed. End quote. So lots of food for thought there. And she goes on to say on page 225, in no country is her legal status identical to man's. And I would say no, no, you know, maybe edu- what, what kind of education do we need today? What, what kind of university does the world need now? Hmm. Different situation before now than it is after COVID, isn't it? And she goes on to say, Beauvoir says, quote, even when her rights are recognized abstractly, long-standing habit keeps them from being concretely manifested in customs. Economically, men and women almost form two castes. All things being equal, the former have better jobs, higher wages, and greater chances to succeed. And I would add here, theoretically as well, she goes on to say, then their new female competitors. They occupy many more places in industry, in politics, and of course, again, side note bracket in education, um, and so on. And they hold the most important positions in that situation, right? She says, and um, in quote again, in addition to their concrete power, they are invested with a prestige whose tradition is reinforced by the child's whole education. The present incorporates the past, and in the past, all history was made by males, end quote. Refusing, she says, to be the other, refusing complicity with man, would mean renouncing all the advantages an alliance with the superior caste confers on them, or just renouncing all advantages of alliance in general that have been created. You know, there's, there's pre-COVID and post-COVID, and it's really different in my humble estimation. It is a really different circumstance now. So, you know, if I was being recorded in the classroom, for example, it is, in my humble estimation, a little different now. Mm. The anguish and stress of authenticity, she says, assumed existence and are thus avoided, right? She goes on to say, so, quote, the anguish and stress of authenticity assumed existence are thus avoided the man who sets the woman up as the other will thus find in her a deep complicity maybe even without her choice right um Beauvoir says quote hence women makes no claim for herself as subject because she lacks the concrete means to do so Mm. because she says she senses the necessary link connecting her to man without positing its reciprocity and because she often derives satisfaction from her role as the other well i'll tell you right now i do not but yeah you get her point right so and on that note if you could just focus pretty heavily then on pages 226 and 227 i'll bring those up in class today i'll leave you with a little Brene brown and alicia keys so this is a clip from the unlocking us podcast which are such lifesavers these days. And now I have to go spend a few hours preparing Immanuel Kant's prolegomena for the modern class as best as I can. I don't even know as I'm bleeding to death here. (laughs) 
what that means. And maybe they're telling me you don't prep enough or soon enough. But I see all my philosophy colleagues. I don't mean at Roger Williams. I just mean in general, you know, doing prep way ahead of time, a long time ahead of time, trying to incorporate the meanings, losing the meaning and prepping right before class, right before class. I see all my colleagues do that. So it's not just bad on me, um, this other. But uh, we have, you know, you know, (laughs) being punished, I guess, for my own habits and bad habits and bad faith. But I have good habits and good faith, too. And I always have. And I don't know if those have often been recognized as such. But doesn't matter. I have autonomy. I can recognize it myself. Aha! There you go as she pulls her sword from behind her back and says, on God. Uh, I'll leave you with a little, and I say that lovingly, of course. Um, It's fun. You know, we can just, just, just have fun. Why not? You know, we could die tomorrow. We could die today. We could bleed to death. We could be alive for many, many more years to come. I don't die till I'm 86. So just so you know, heads up, hashtag woke. I don't die till I'm 86. You cannot take me until then. <laughs> that is my free will choice. I've heard our souls have actual free will. Imagine that. Imagine if that's true. Suzanne Giesman reference here. Hashtag woke different way. Different way. Metaphysical way. Imagine if our souls had actual free will. Ooh, that's so hard to think about if we're reincarnated. So difficult to think about. I'm thinking of the research here of Dr. Jim Tucker, but of University of Virginia and, on, and reincarnation research uh, on children with past life memories. That stuff is real. Go look it up. Um, I'll look it up with you. I always have. And uh, so uh, maybe get some better, better habits here and leave you with a little Brene Brown and Alicia Keys point well taken. And also um, some unlocking us and some unlocking autonomy and also some uh, thank you for that, uh, by the way. And also then a little bit everything will be all right by the killers because everything will be all right. So I'm glad that it wouldn't. Let's get to that. Let's get to that because let me tell you. So you're in Hell's Kitchen. Your mom comes up with 50 bucks to have movers move this piano. You get the piano teacher. I literally have like 17 pages of quotes here from your book that I could read that just blew my mind. So things are going well. But now you're starting to get some attention. People are like, wow, who is she? This music's amazing. And you write... It's hard to pinpoint the precise moment when we internalize other people's assessments. It's usually not just a single experience, but rather a series of moments that bruise the spirit and lead us to distrust ourselves and those around us. And then we wake up at age 17 or 25 or 37, and we realize we don't know the last time we've lived life only to please ourselves. That's a big one. That's a big one. And it's, I found myself only recently realizing that I truly made so many decisions or I found myself in so many positions of altering little small pieces of myself in order to either please somebody else or in order to fit in better to what I thought that they would want me to be. and who you are and what you think and your opinion and then being strong enough to if your opinion differs here's the part oh yeah your opinion differs opinion differs from what the large majority of whomever is in your ear or whatever ear or whatever noise is around you are you strong enough to say i respect what you think but here's what i love could you could you really it's challenging it's challenging and, and a lot of times A lot of times I did, and a lot of times I didn't. You know, it's really interesting. As a creative, I so related to your ability to find inspiration in in everything, in high art, low art, outsider art, insider art. It didn't matter. You found inspiration. And when I read this piece that said that the betrayals are small and imperceptible, I thought about the movie Spirited Away, and I I thought Mm -hmm. about the concept of death by paper cuts. Wow. It's so small and you can't see it, but it's there. Wow. So on creativity, on creativity, this is what you write that I think is really interesting. Creativity is inherently messy. It's chaotic and nonlinear. It comes to life and fits and starts, disjointed and seemingly random. That chaos for me often begins with a fleeting inspiration, a sudden burst of an idea or sound. The spark may come from a line I read in a novel, a conversation I've overheard, or an abiding sense of calm I felt during a Sunday stroll through Harlem's Mount Morris Park. 
you you strike me as someone who walks through the world with their heart open and their feelers on grabbing every bit of magic from life that you can find and there's also a price you pay when for those of us who do walk through the world with our hearts open and our antennas up and on it can be overwhelming right absolutely so much i it's so interesting because i've always been so glass half full somehow and i've always been really grateful about that i'm proud of being that way of being an optimist and i think that's also a form of survival that deep desire to know that everything's going to be okay 